The scripture reading for this morning is from Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come upon my land, come against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The uh, atheist Richard Dawkins, in reflecting on suffering in the world, once wrote this. Some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's a a view of reality that in no way comports with the message of the Bible or the reality of a God who exists and governs all things. Um, It's it's good to want to have and, and develop a response to such an argument. Although at the end of the day, the simple fact of the matter is where we need to land as believers is simply this. Our God is good. He is in control. 
We can trust him. That's where we need to be in our hearts. But often we struggle to be there, and the Bible does give us reasons to land there. Joel gives us reasons to land there. All of the scriptures, including this very hard word from Joel, are meant for our encouragement, that we might be instructed and have hope. This is what we saw in, uh, in Romans as we looked at that briefly last week. So what can we say about suffering? And what can we say about suffering as it relates to God's purpose for his church, for his people in the midst of that suffering? suffering? And again, those are questions that the prophets help us answer. Last week, we looked at what Peter had to say about the Old Testament prophets in Acts chapter 3. We saw how all the prophets point to Jesus and all their words will come to pass They focus, the prophets primarily focus on the coming day of the Lord, a day that will bring both judgment on sin and restoration of the earth and God's people. And we learned from, again, from Paul, as we looked at Paul and Romans and Peter, that their words were written ultimately for us. The words of the prophets were written for us. And so we do well to listen to what they have to say. So this week we jump in and we begin our study of Joel. We know next to nothing about Joel the man. Scholars aren't entirely sure when he wrote. Some believe he wrote uh, early, 8th, 9th century BC, so before the exile. Some think he wrote relatively late, so 6th, 5th century, somewhere in there after the exile. I personally think um, on, on balance the evidence points to the earlier date. For Joel, if you want to know why, come talk to me. We can talk about it. Um, We know he's writing to the people of Judah. And we absolutely know his message. He's making it abundantly clear what his message is. God is going to bring a natural disaster to Judah. He's going to bring a locust plague in order to wake up his people from their slumber, to convict them of sin, to draw them to repentance, and to walk more closely with him. But God will also bring restoration. And ultimately, both the locust plague and the restoration will point to the judgment and the restoration that will come on that day of the Lord at the end of history. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, Peter, the same Peter that we studied last week in Acts chapter 3, said in his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, that we should expect the very kind of thing to happen today. Not necessarily a locust plague, but God to bring judgment in order for the refining of his people before the return of the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 17, Peter writes, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And he's talking about the people of God. And we're going to see as we study Joel, and hopefully by the time we get to this, the end of the sermon today, that there is a continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, such that the people of God in any age should expect to, for God to bring this kind of refining fire in our midst in order to prepare us for that coming day of the Lord. Do we realize that this is God's plan for the church. Joel begins his book with a call to listen. And if we will listen, 
His words will challenge us to ask ourselves how we will respond to disaster in our lives, be it personal or on a broader scale. Will we respond with despair or hardened hearts when disaster hits close to home? When disaster strikes elsewhere, will we just kind of shrug our shoulders or, or feel a sense of, I don't know what to do or how to feel about that? Or will we respond to disaster by drawing near to God in personal lament, repentance, and faith? Because that's where Joel would lead us. That's where Scripture leads us. So there's four questions I want to ask this morning in in order to kind of orient us to Joel. I'm really hoping, again, that by the end of the sermon, you will realize that this isn't just something that happened to God's people, specifically those in Judah in the Old Testament, and it doesn't really apply to us, so maybe there's some principles we can draw from it. I, I, I hope that I will be able to at least disabuse you of the notion that that's all that's happening here. Of course, we can draw principles from every part of Scripture. I want us to see that Joel is in our Bible, ultimately because we need to put ourselves numbered among the people of God in every age and recognize that this is the kind of thing that God does out of love, ultimately, for the refining of his people, to purify a bride for himself, and yet from his hand, and not random fate or chance that happens. So four questions. Who are the people of God? That's the first question. Second, what is the day of the Lord? Third, what should the church expect? And then fourth, how should the church respond? Who are the people of God? What is the day of the Lord? What should the church expect? And how should the church respond? But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful that you are in control. Lord, there are things that happen in our lives and in this world that we, we just simply cannot comprehend. And so we pray, Lord, that in all things, whether we are here this morning as those who are personally suffering in very profound ways, are experiencing loss because of uh, tragedy in our circle of family or friends, or are just perplexed and, and um, confused by the horrible things that happen in our city and in our country, in our state, around the world, Lord, we do pray that you would help us all come to that place of simple faith where we are able to say with sincerity of heart, my God is in control, I know he can be trusted, and so I will do so. But Lord, help us to keep that in our hearts and our thinking as well, that we might, as we study Joel and study these um, difficult and yet true truths about who you are and what you do in history, for the sake of your name and for the purity of your people. Lord, help us to grow, help us to learn, help us to be challenged, help us to trust you and love you even more. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so these first two questions, who are the people of God and what is the day of the Lord, are going to feel like they're, they're just running on separate tracks. They will connect when we get to the third question, what should the church expect? And that will help us, I hope, really take to heart the application that Joel has for the people of Judah and consequently for us in the church of Christ in every age. So who are the people of God? And and just put quite simply, the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, are those who are saved by faith. 
Abraham, from the very beginning, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Paul picks that same line up in Romans 1.17 and says, in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, are not those who were, you know, born into the right family or, or you know, of a physical descent from Abraham or our members of a church made profession of faith and were baptized, that alone does not signal that you are part of the true people of God. The people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, are those who are saved by faith. The Old Testament people of God, looking through the sacrifices, looking through the temple, looking through all the systems that were set up to the, the, to the substance, to Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer who had come, and we who are privileged now to look back on the Messiah who has come. That center point of history being the cross of Jesus Christ. B.C., A.D., before and after, those who are saved are saved only by faith. However, just as Paul said in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel was Israel, so too not all the church is the church. In Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 8, 6 to 8, Paul writes this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What Paul is saying there is when you look at the Old Testament people of God, when you consider Israel, it is not the case that simply being a physical descendant of Abraham meant that you were numbered among the people of God. The Israel of God were not those among the men who had circumcised flesh, but those men and women who had circumcised hearts. And that was something that God said he would do in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. So not all Israel was Israel. And when we get to the New Testament, we realize that same kind of continuity exists. Not all the church is the church. The church is made up of those who make profession of faith. We believe, as Presbyterians, those who make profession of faith together with their children receive the sign of baptism, are, are marked off, as it were, as part of God's covenant family. However, you can't read Hebrews chapter 6. You can't read 1 John 2.19 and realize that it is also true that there are those who make profession of faith and then at some point turn away and never return. And we, so many of us, have experienced that in our lives. Some of you have been among those who made profession of faith and then turned away for a season, and now you're back, and I'm one of them. But we also all grieve because we know those who have turned away and we wonder, will they return? And it has been the case throughout history. It's, it's rooted even in 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, <clears throat> they would have continued with us. But they went out <clears throat> that it might become plain. <clears throat> Thanks for muting that. I appreciate that. <laughs> and they appreciate it even more. Um, they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This is, the, this is the reality. It is simply not the case that a church can say our membership is only and exclusively and entirely made up of those who are saved. Elders hear professions of faith. 
in order to admit people into membership. We discern as best as we can if a profession of faith is genuine, but only the Lord knows the heart. And the reality of a profession of faith is seen over time. It's not in a snapshot. It's not in a membership interview. It's known over time. What will always bear out over time is that it is only those who have faith in Christ who are saved. Not all Israel was Israel. Not all the church is the church. Israel was made up of, and the church is made up of, those who are not true professors of the faith. Okay, so there's the answer to the first question, who the people of God are. Now let's talk about the day of the Lord. What is this concept of the day of the Lord? In Joel, it refers most immediately for the people of Judah to an actual locust plague. It's not figurative language in Joel. He's talking about actual locusts that are going to invade, uh, you know, infest the land. The phrase, first of all, day of the Lord, occurs five times in Joel. In chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 11, 2, 31, and 3, 14. And again, not just in Joel, but in the prophets in general, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is, is pointing towards something that is coming at the end of history, when God establishes his kingdom, when the, when the wicked are judged and the righteous, and in their mind that meant Israel, are uh, restored, the earth is restored, they are vindicated for the suffering that they experience, and the earth is inherited, and it's theirs. Joel and all the prophets spoke of it as a time of judgment and a time of restoration at the same time. Thank you, man. Appreciate that, Paul. We're keeping you busy this morning. Uh, Look at Joel chapter 1, verse 4 real quick, and then we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 25, just so you can see how this speaking of judgment and speaking of restoration come together within the book itself. So chapter 1, verse 4, Joel says this, With a cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. With the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And with the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So there's this picture of judgment that's coming. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 25, and you read of the restoration. 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. So here is God saying, I'm the sender of the locust plague. I'm the one that sent them among your midst. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, but judgment has been sent nonetheless. That's that these two are coming together here in Joel. Again, why God sent the locust plague in Joel isn't specified. Not like some of the other prophets in which it's very clear that the issue is idolatry. Worship of false gods. That's not clear here in Joel. It's not specifically mentioned. However, there is this call to wake up, this call to lament, this call to repent, to to call a solemn assembly, to fast, to rend your hearts and not your garments. And I think from all of those, we we can get this picture of the kind of complacency and of taking God for granted presuming upon him that can characterize the people of God in every generation. We do take God for granted, don't we? We presume upon him. We expect him to serve us. 
We don't live with the proper humility before him as creatures before their creator. He's the Lord of the universe. We are dust, and we rarely, except in times of suffering, remember such things. So Joel speaks of this coming disaster. It's a locust plague. O. Palmer Robertson in his commentary on Joel points out that Joel uses four of the nine words for locusts in the Bible. If there are nine words to describe one insect, you can know that that insect has a profound impact on those people. Nine different words. Joel picks up four of them. The picture, whether these are four different stages of a single locust or four different kinds of locusts or four different kinds of locust plagues, none of which is clear. What is absolutely clear is there's a problem. Locusts, they're coming. Uh, Jim Boyce, in his commentary on Joel, speaks of a plague that took place in 1915 in Palestine and Syria. The first swarms of locusts came in in the month of March. Um, the adult locusts, they were coming in, they were so thick that they darkened the sun. The females were two and a half to three inches long. They immediately began to lay eggs by digging holes about four inches deep in the soil and depositing about 100 eggs in each hole. Witnesses estimated that between 65,000 and 75,000 um, little, you know, holes with eggs in them could be found in a single square meter of soil. The females flew away. Within a few weeks, the locusts hatched, and it was utter devastation. John D. Whiting, in the December 1915 issue of National Geographic, wrote this, Once entering a vineyard, the sprawling vines would be, in the shortest time, nothing but bare bark. When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the young topmost branches, which after exposure to the sun were bleached snow white. Then seemingly out of malice, they would gnaw off small limbs, perhaps to get at the pith within. Then they attacked the olive trees. <clears throat> they stripped every leaf, berry, and even the tender bark. They ate away layer after layer of the cactus plants. Even on the scarce and prized palms, they had no pity gnawing off the tenderer ends of the sword-like branches and diving deep into the heart, they tunneled after the juicy pith. We can't imagine the kind of utter devastation that that you know, sea of locusts would bring as they came in. It gives us an opportunity to pause and ask the question, what about natural disasters today? Natural disasters Happen. Should we think that when a natural disaster happens, that it's happening on those that are affected by it because of their sin? Because that's what's happening in Joel. So what, what do we do with that? Pastor and author Mike Bullmore says concerning natural desires, the place to start is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says that all creation has been subjected to futility by the one who subjected it. And that creation itself groans in its longing for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, a way of pointing to that day that is coming. So there's no part of creation that is unaffected by the entrance of sin into the world because of man. All creation is affected by sin. It's all laboring and groaning because it's out of accord with God's design because of the entrance of sin. 
and God's response of judgment on that sin. So Romans 8 alone is enough to explain what's behind the earthquakes, the tsunamis, etc. On the other hand, God does directly intervene in the Bible. We read about it in Joel. The ten plagues in Egypt, another example of God directly intervening to bring specific judgment on a specific people. Here's the thing. We don't know. Anyone who says that 9-11 was God's judgment on America or this earthquake or that tsunami was God's judgment on that country or this country is a fool for the simple reason that they are daring to speak for God of that that they do not know. We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that these are opportunities, as we'll see in Joel, to lament and repent. More will be said on repentance next week, but let's come back to Joel. Joel's telling us here that that locust plague is a preview of that coming day of the Lord. He hints at that in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Blow the trumpet in, no, that's chapter 2, 1, 15 to 18. Alas for the day, that phrase, alas for the day, is woven throughout the prophets as well. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. He'll speak more of that in in, uh, chapter 2 and following. So again, all the prophets saw the day of the Lord as a time that would bring judgment on evil, judgment on those who were the enemies of God's people, restoration of the land and of the people, and vindication for the people of God because of the suffering that they endured. Here's the thing. All the prophets expected that to happen all at once. You've heard me give the example of a mountain range. How when you are driving across the, um, you know, the, the plains and you see the Rocky Mountains off in the distance, if you've never been through them and if you have no concept of what a mountain range is like, so you're a little kid, all you would see are the, you know, the jagged line on the horizon. You, you might think that this is just this two-dimensional thing. There's height, there's width, and that's it. And then you get there and you realize there's depth to this. I'm passing through this mountain range. The prophets, as they prophesied, all saw the day of the Lord as if it were two-dimensional, as if it were there's a point in history at which that would happen. They didn't see the depth of the mountain range. And what you see as you pass through the Bible and as you pass through the New Testament, starting with Jesus, who interestingly in Luke chapter 3, quoting from Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 61, and speaking about the day of the Lord has come, the day in which the prisoners are set free, the shackles are loosed, the lame are healed, leaves off what Isaiah has at the end of that passage concerning the vengeance of the Lord. Jesus leaves that off. Why? Because we're still in the mountain range. That day is coming. The day that Isaiah saw, the day that Joel saw, the day that all the prophets saw that was beginning with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and will end with his return. We are in the mountain range now. Joel even spoke of what he didn't realize would be part of the trip through the mountain range when he said in Joel chapter 2 that the Spirit would be poured out on the people. 
Um, Paul, Peter will pick that same passage up in Acts chapter 2 and say that's being fulfilled here. What Joel spoke of then is being fulfilled here now. And yet that great restoration, Joel will speak of the earth being restored. The earth that is cursed now because of sin being completely restored in the most graphic and beautiful of images. That is yet to come as is all the other promises concerning the resurrection of the dead and, and, and every tear being wiped from every eye, everything that is coming. And yet here we are experiencing in part that which will one day come in full. If you're a Christian, we're in the mountain range, and yet the high peak has been passed. The high peak was the cross. The high peak was where the judgment of God that every single one of us deserve as covenant breakers, as breakers of God's law, the covenant curse, the preview of the judgment that will come for those who do not repent before the Lord Jesus returns, that was poured out on Jesus on that day when the day of the Lord came not to bring judgment on the earth, but to bring judgment on Jesus so that those who look to him in faith would escape that judgment that is to come. That has to be where you start as a Christian when you think about this third question, what should the church expect today? Because we, when we think about suffering, whether it's natural disasters or personal disasters and tragedy, and when we think about all these things, the one thing we can't think is this is God judging me in the sense of condemning me for my sin because that was poured out on Jesus. The thing that frees us up as Christians to be able to ask questions like, Lord, what do you have for me in the midst of this? The thing that frees us up to be able to do that before a loving father without fear is knowing that the very wrath that we do deserve was poured out on Jesus Christ in our place. So what should the church expect? Well, what was God doing with his people in the Old Testament? He was purifying them. He was cleansing them. He was pouring out judgment such that those who were truly his and had faith would grow in their faith, would grow closer to him. And those who were, you know, descendants of Abraham but not circumcised in the heart would either repent or turn away. C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse the deaf world. God used suffering and hardship in the world still to this very day to strengthen the faith of those who know him, to call from among those who don't yet know him, to to wake them up that they might repent and look to him in faith. And for those who are going to reject him, their hearts are hardened and they turned away. At the end of the day, though, all pain, all suffering, all hardship comes from the Lord to accomplish his purpose in his world. God was purifying his people in the Old Testament. He was giving opportunity to repent for those who were turning away, and he's doing the same thing today. This is why 1 Peter is such an important letter for us. I, I mean, obviously, every word of every page of the Bible is important, but I have for some time felt like one of the most important books for our age is 1 Peter for a number of reasons. 
not least of which the reality that we need to embrace that everything that happens is for the purpose of our purification. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.15, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The same purifying fire that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 48 is the same purifying fire that God is working amongst his people today that Peter speaks of in 1 Peter 4.17. This judgment that is beginning with the household of God is for the refining of God's people. He is preparing for himself a bride. We read Ephesians 5. It's a beautiful passage. It's read or preached at weddings. That's, that's wonderful. But realize what's going on there. When we're told about Jesus purifying a bride for himself, that cannot be thought of apart from what Peter is saying about judgment beginning with the household of God. They go together. How should the church respond? A couple of things we can look at here in Joel chapter 1 just to, to wrap up. First, wake up and listen. Wake up and listen. Joel chapter 1 verse 1, well, verse 2, hear this, you elders. Do the elders there mean the older generation? Do the elders there mean the leaders among the people? I think we can just safely assume both because we don't know for sure. But for those of us who are leaders in the church, and for those of us who are more seasoned in our faith and in years, if we're not responding to this call, should we expect others behind us to follow? Wake up and listen. Verse 5, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. This is not, you know, a, a call to abstinence from alcohol. This is a call to wake up those who are so dull in their thinking concerning reality that they've forgotten that God is even there and Joel says, wake up. Not just the elders, but all are to wake up. Again, back in verse 2, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. The message of Joel, which we're going to be in for about five weeks, four more after today, must shake us out of our complacency. Second lament Joel calls for lament in this passage. Joel, Joel is look, he's talking about this locust plague that is coming, and he's saying, when the plague comes, this is how you're to respond. He's saying, listen now, but this is what you should expect. This is what, what God wants you to do when that day comes. Lament, he says. Lament, verse 8, like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. What a, what a graphic and, and sad picture that is. A betrothed woman who's betrothed soon-to-be husband dies. 
The priests are mourning in verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. Why? The people aren't able to come and worship according to the way God had set out for them to worship. This beautiful reality of Old Testament worship was being cut off simply because the, the produce was gone. There was nothing for the people to bring. The priests mourn. The ground mourns, verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. You can't, you know, read that passage without thinking about Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Publish his glorious deeds. The gods of the other nations. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. The earth will be restored, but God's bringing judgment such that even the ground, as it were, mourns. The joy of the people is dried up, verse 12. Gladness dries up from the children of man. We're called when tragedy strikes just to sit in our grief and mourn. But we're also called to repent. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, there are, I think, seven commands that God gives through Joel for ministers to call people to repentance. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your Lord. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Again, we'll talk more about repentance next week, but a few things to say here. We don't always know if suffering is God's judgment on our sin. We don't always know that. We may know that suffering we're experiencing is a consequence of our sin. We may know that. That alone makes it an opportunity to repent if it is a consequence for our sin. But suffering is always an opportunity, again, in light of the fact that the high peak has been passed. The curse was poured out on Jesus in our place. Suffering is always an opportunity to ask, Lord, what do you have for me in this? And if he's exposing any sin, to repent. And then fourth, speak of these things. Speak of these things. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. We are and we ought to be very quick to tell our children about the gospel. But the gospel includes the bad news, if you will, that God will judge sin. We need to teach our children. And we need to call upon our children to teach their children that there is a judgment that is coming that may be escaped by putting your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Who are the people of God? Those who are saved by faith in every generation. What is the day of the Lord? It's the day that is coming when Jesus Christ will return and all evil will be judged and everything that's broken will be healed and all that's crooked will be made straight and every tear will be wiped from every eye. What should the church expect now? Refining fire. And how should we respond? Drawing near. Drawing near to the Lord. You know, there's all kinds of verses that come out of different prophets, 
Think of also lamentations. Think of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord was, was an encouragement to those who were coming back from exile, who were limping, who were wounded, who were broken. They were returning, and the temple was torn down. The walls were broken down, and yet it would be the joy of the Lord that would be their strength. Isaiah could speak to the people of the oil of joy for gladness. Joy, we can actually experience throughout our life, no matter what the Lord permits in our lives. He is a good and gracious God. He will purify a people for himself. If your trust is in him for your salvation, he will keep purifying you. That you will look more and more like Jesus and enjoy his joy to the full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd help us take to heart this message. Lord, we pray that you would enable us through all the difficulties that we face in life and, and the hardships that may be yet to come, to look to you, to realize that you are a good and gracious God and you are accomplishing a purpose for your glory and for the purification of your church and the purification of your children, that we might follow you and, and love you and live for your glory and in so doing find our greatest joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.